You're listening to the podcast of Wind River Community Church, located in Lander, Wyoming, featuring sermons by Pastor Ken Simon. For more information on us, please visit windriverchurch.com. I want to talk a little bit to you about something that I don't like talking about that much. My cat. I'm not a cat person. I, I, I don't really... I, it's not like I hate cats, but they're... Cats and I are just not that good of friends. And, um, you know, for the obvious reasons. Number one, there's hair everywhere. I don't leave hair anywhere. Um, they have this little box with litter in it. And even though it's not my cat, I clean the litter box. Not a pleasant job. Don't like the litter box. Uh, the, other, the other part about a cat, most cats, not all of them, but most cats is, is that when you call the cat, it looks at you and runs the other way. Unlike a dog, when you call a dog, they come running to you. So cats are kind of that way. But our cat, um, we've had this cat for a long time. We, um, last week I was telling you about when Carissa was little and all the kids went off to school and she was home alone. Um, she was kind of driving Lorinda nuts. So Lorinda went out and got a kitten for Carissa to occupy her time. This cat is not that cat. This is the kitten of that cat. And this, our cat's name is Nikki, and we've had her now for 19 years. But the interesting thing about Nikki is that you've heard the old saying that cats have nine lives. I'm beginning to think that it's true. About 10 years ago, when we were, after we'd built our home, we were working on the landscaping. And so I had rented a bobcat to move the dirt around and flatten it out and prep our yard for... Um, sod. And so I'm moving all the dirt around, but in the back of our house, going up the hill, our well is at the back. And so um, after we filled in the trench where the well line came from over that winter and spring, the earth had settled quite a bit. And when I saw that, I thought, okay, I'm going to fill that back in and smooth it over and put the dirt in there and pack it down with the bobcat and all's going to be good. And so I did this work, and I was at it for a number of hours, and I finally got done, and the, and the prep looked good for the yard. And so Lorinda and I were sitting on the front porch of our house, kind of in the shade because it was summer, and we were really enjoying our time. And then all of a sudden, I kind of looked at Lorinda, and I said, Hey, where's Nikki, the cat? And she goes, I don't know. Because usually when we sit outside, she comes running up and joins us and just has to be around us. And so... Uh, we're sitting there, and there's no cat, and we're kind of going like, I wonder where the cat is, because she's usually right here. And I said, when did you see her last? She goes, well, when you were working with the bobcat, she took off running. And I went, oh. And then all of a sudden, it hit me like a ton of bricks. <gasps> because back in the back where that trench had caved in, there was one spot where the water ran down, and it made a cave. And I had seen her in there before, where she would crawl in underneath this little cave in the cool dirt to get away from the heat. And I thought to myself, I buried her alive. So I went running back out there to where I had been working. I got real close to the ground as I could and, and trying to be as quiet as I could. I'd go, Nikki, Nikki. And then all of a sudden I heard, and I went, oh, no. So I had to go get a shovel and very carefully unearthed the cat from her tomb. She was buried alive. And it took me about 45 minutes to get her out. I finally got her out, and she came out, and she shook the dirt off of her, and she just kind of looked around, and she started to purr. And I went like, oh, good thing. Now, it, you know, I mean, I wouldn't have really probably shed any tears if I would have killed the cat. But my daughter would have been really upset with me. Yeah, I buried her back there. She was alive. I, you know inner tube. So, you know, that was kind of a close call for the cat. Well, like four years ago, when we had our other dog named Chester, and he, he was 12 years old or so, and he was kind of old, and he, weighs about, he weighed about 120 pounds, and he had an enormous head, and um, he would let us know when he wanted in from outside. And so at Christmas time, he was outside, and he was barking at the front door saying, please let me in, it's cold. And we were a little bit lazy, so we would open up the garage door and hit the button for the big garage door to come up. He'd run in, we'd hit the button, he'd go back down, and he'd come in the house. 
And um, so that's what he did. But when he got in the house, he was kind of like prancing around and going, just making all kinds of funny noises. And I'm like, I'm irritated with him because we just let him in and now he wants back out. So we open the door, hit the garage button, and he goes running out the garage door, hit the button again. And my oldest daughter, Leela, is looking out the window and she can see the dog and she looks and she can see a part of the cat, kind of the cat's tail, and it's fluffed out about this big around the whole way down. And Leela goes, Mom, there's something wrong with Nikki. I better go see what it is. Well, she goes out there and Nikki is laying flat on her chest and her legs are spread out like this and her eyeballs are poking out of her head and she's going... Apparently, when, she, when, when the dog came in the first time, she tried to run out underneath the garage door, but she wasn't as fast as she thought he, she was. So we pinned her under the garage door. So we went out, we picked up the cat, and I brought her in. And I mean, she, she wasn't looking at anybody. She was trying to breathe. She was having labored breathing. I made a nice little bed because my daughter, who owns the cat, was standing behind me. And I put her on the bed, and I looked at her, and Carissa says to me, Daddy, is she going to be okay? And I looked at her, and I go, oh, yeah, she's going to be fine. But in my mind, I'm looking at this cat going, it's dead in the morning. This cat is not going to survive. In the morning, got up, she was eating and drinking and purring and acting like nothing ever happened. This cat of ours, who's 19 years old, was at death's door two times. And didn't die. Now you're wondering, what does that story have to do with us? Well, let me try and tie this together for you. Because it really is going to help us to understand our passage this morning. Because this passage that we're looking at in Ephesians 2, it starts off in the whole... It's Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. And it talks about how we have been spiritually dead, but because of Christ, He has made us alive. So we were dead, we were going from death to life, because that's what Jesus does for us. And so what I want to do now is I want us to just turn in your Bibles, or you can watch up on the screen as we read through the, the uh, verses 1 through 3. We're going to hit those three verses first, and then we're going to press on and catch the rest of them. And so here's what it says in verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now here's what Paul's doing in this particular passage. When we first read that, we kind of look at it and we're going like, oh my goodness, this is bad news because it says here that we are all dead in our sins and our trespasses. That's what it says. I mean, right there it says we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. But what I want you to catch are the two words that kind of come after that that are really important because they're they're the two words that were were and once. In other words, past tense. What Paul is saying is is that because of our relationship with Christ, because we have come into this relationship with Christ, let's look back and see who we were, what we were like. Because it's really important for us to understand that. Where did we come from? What was our life like? What were we living like? How did we behave prior to coming into this relationship with Jesus? And it's highly important that we really understand where we've been and where we're going. Because there are a lot of people today who are not in relationship with Christ. They may know something about Him. They may know something about God. But they have never taken the step to step into that relationship with Christ. It's like they are on this this path that is, the gate is wide and the way that is easy. And that path leads to destruction And many are on it, the Bible tells us. There's a reason why they're on this path. And in this passage, it's really interesting to to see what Paul Paul pulls out for us. Because when you read this, the first thought that we have when we look at it is that there is no hope. In those first three verses, there is no hope. 
But that's not Paul's point. Paul's point is, is that there's a lot of hope, but we have to understand where our hope comes from. We have to understand where we have been and where we are going. And so this morning, as we take a look at this, it's that God has come to us and He has made his, his, Himself known to us. Even though we don't always recognize God's hand at work, He has made Himself known to us. Paul addressed this very issue when he wrote his letter to the church in Rome. And it says there, For although they knew God, that is the people around us, every person has an idea about God. He says, Even though they knew, uh, knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory for of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. Paul's point in that little section there is that our natural inclination, our natural heart's desire is not for God. It's for ourselves. we, We want to create the things that we think are going to bring us satisfaction, the things that are going to bring us comfort, the things that are going to bring us joy. Um, We may not be doing like what they did in this passage in Rome where they were um, worshiping the mortal men or birds or animals or creeping things, but it, it is similar because we desire something other than God. We desire stuff. We desire um, um, to have honor. We desire that our name be known. We desire to be popular. We have all these different kinds of desires, but none of them are towards God. And, and that becomes a huge problem for us because in Romans one twenty five it says, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. You see... there's this little thing of a lie that goes out there that says you don't need God. You don't need to be in relationship with God. Hey, it's okay to learn about God so that you can talk to other people and argue with them about God, but you really don't need to know God and you don't need God in your life. And so as Paul has addressed this whole issue in regards to this, let's go back to our passage because there's, there are some points in there that are really important for us to bring out. It go, let me read it again. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In this passage, Paul does, he identifies um, three areas that lead us away from God and toward our own desires. The passage says it this way, the world, the prince of the power of the air, and our flesh. This little trifecta is what leads us away from God or keeps us away from God and leads us to disobedience. The influences that we face and draw us away from God, if I were to put it to you in more simpler terms, are the world, the devil, and the flesh. Those are the three areas that people have to battle all the time. Those are the three areas, influences, that keep people from knowing God. They're the three influences, listen to this, even after you come into faith with Christ, those three things are still trying to drag you away from spending time with God. So let's take a look at what those three areas are. So when we talk about the world, we're not talking about this earth that God created. We're talking about the culture in which we live. Our culture is always telling us stuff that is contrary to the Word of God. It's trying to set itself up as having a better knowledge about life and death and spiritual things and how to find happiness and joy. And so when it says the world, it's talking about our culture and the things that our culture is telling us are okay for us to do. Now, there's a lot of things that our culture says, hey, you can do this, 
and it's fine. And it is true. We can do some of those things, and it's fine. But anything that sets itself up against God's word, anything that says, do this rather than what the Bible says or what God has to say, is dragging our attention away from God and trying to help us uh, move further away from God rather than getting to know him in, in a deeper way. And that, that's a huge problem. Because we come to these whole things because we look at other people around us and it seems like there are other people out there who are really highly successful and the thing that we know about them is, is that they are kind of shysters when it comes to business. They do things that are not... I mean, it's right on the edge. It's, not, it's maybe not completely illegal, but it may not be ethical or moral. And so when we take a look at what those people are doing, we go like, well, they're doing it, and they're being prosperous, and they're doing well, so I might as well do it too. You've heard it all said before. Everybody else is doing it. Why can't I? If you have teenagers, you've heard that before for sure. The problem is is that, that what we do is... We, we fudge on the, these little issues in life. They're just little things. They're not that big. They're not that important, we think. It, it, it's like when, when we get pulled over by the policeman and his lights are flashing in the background and we don't have our seatbelt on and so we reach over and we really kind of nonchalantly click it on and it comes up and the police officer says, Do you know why I pulled you over? Not a clue, officer. Well, you're doing about 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. Really? Huh, I didn't know that. Were you wearing your seatbelt? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Because you get a discount if you're wearing your seatbelt when you get a ticket. I mean, what, that's a deal. Isn't it awesome? We're going to knock $10 off of your $120 fine. You go, woohoo! Can't wait to tell the wife that one. I saved 10 bucks today, honey. Right? But what we do is all of a sudden we start to tell these little lies just to keep ourselves from getting in more trouble. We cheat a little bit on our taxes. We, we steal something from our... I mean, okay, so the, you know, the company has a bunch of pencils and I need some pencils at home for the kids and why... I hate going to Walmart. They've got a little container of these pencils there, so I just might as well take some home. They'll never miss them. You know what the Bible calls that? Stealing. When you're walking through the grocery store and you're looking at the grapes and you say to yourself, I wonder if these grapes are any good. And so you pluck about six or seven of them off and you're eating them as you're walking through the store and you're going like, they're pretty tasty. I should have bought some. Or you walk over at Christmas time and they've got those... um, boxes full of Christmas candy, and you're looking at it, and you go, they look like they could be stale. So you reach in, and you grab a few, and you, you plop them in your mouth, and you're eating them just to test them out to see if they're good enough to take home for the family. But you know what the Bible calls that? Stealing. And you see, the world would tell you, hey, it's okay. The, the grocery store allows for that kind of nonsense. But I'll tell you, if the grocery store allows for it, God certainly does not allow for it, because he still says it's stealing. And the problem is, is that the world says these things are okay. And that, and that, that we, can, we can do these things without a problem. And, and it's not going to affect this one little bit. But the problem is, is that as soon as we start to step into what the world says is okay, but God says is wrong, we've stepped on what is called the slippery slope. Because all of a sudden we start doing things uh, greater things that we thought we would never do. And it finally ends up that we're doing bigger things and getting in deeper trouble than we ever thought because back there, when the world says it was okay, we are now in a place where we find ourselves in the deep weeds. And it's not okay with God. And so that's the first thing that is influencing our, uh, our minds and our hearts. Those are the things that drag us away from God. Those are the things that people who don't know Christ are fully engulfed in and doing, and they have no thought about God because they're just satisfying themselves by looking at what everybody else does and says it must be okay. 
the next one that it talks about, hang on a second. Um, I do want to hit Romans 12 too. Because in Romans 12 too, Paul also dealt with this thing because he says there to the Roman church, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The influence of this world is like this because it says don't be conformed, don't be conformed to this world. Now let me put it to you in terms like this. Let's just say that in the, of all the things that are going on now with our weather and we've had these warm days and there's been, been a lot of snow melting and all of a sudden you walk into the kitchen and you notice that just next to the kitchen window there's a little trickle of water coming down from the ceiling. And you look at the ceiling, but there's no moisture running on the ceiling. It's just, and so you're going like, well, that's weird. Huh. I wonder where that came from. And then you just go like, oh, it's no big deal. And you forget it. And you just walk away from it. But what happens is then we get more rain and we get more snow and more melting and everything else. And all of a sudden, what was just a small little problem that probably could have been dealt with quite easily has now become a huge issue because now you've got uh, the black mold up there. You've got uh, sheetrock that is all soggy and wet and it's starting to trickle into the electrical system and shorting things out. And the next thing you know, you went from having a small issue that would have been easily repaired if we would have gotten on top of it right away to now a bigger issue that is going to be the whole remodel of your kitchen which is going to cost, cost you thousands of dollars. That's what happens to our soul when we let the world influence us and we don't take notice of those things and we don't check our spirit and check our hearts and check God's word and we go like, I need to stop this right now. But if we don't stop it right now, we're going to have a huger problem on our hands than what we would have if we would have stepped in at the right time. Now let's move on to the devil. This is a big one because, you know, here's, here's the thing. Um, I've heard of people who say that they don't believe in God, but they believe in the devil. Or I've heard people that say they do believe in God, but they really don't believe in the devil. Well, I'm going to tell you that if God exists, the devil exists. If the devil exists, God exists. I know God exists, and by the way, I also know that the devil exists too. But here's the big the big thing about it is, is that we walk around, some people walk around, I'm not going to say we, but there are some Christians who walk around kind of like, you know, they're scared because the devil's out there and he's going to do something to me. All right, if you're in Jesus, he can try to mess with you a little bit, but that's like messing with somebody's little brother. It just doesn't work. Uh, when I was in high school, um, my brother, Dwight, he was, he was six foot two when he came out of the womb, I swear it. Weighed 180 pounds trying to give birth to that thing. But he, uh, I also had a friend named uh, Tony. We called him Too Tall Tony because he was six foot eight. And, and then my best friend, Scott, was Tony's cousin, and Scott was six foot four. And so all three of these guys played on the defensive side of the football team. And they were pretty huge dudes. And there's this other guy in school. Uh, we called him Sarge because he always dressed in fatigues. Army boots, army jacket, army pads. The problem is, is that my younger brother and I, uh, just from a glance, we could look similar. Because my mom always bought the same clothes. And, and so we would look similar. And so I was walking down the hall. Nobody else in the hall except Sarge. And I just knew Sarge from a distance. And as I'm walking by Sarge, all of a sudden, he punches me right in the stomach. I mean, just knocks the wind out of me. Well, I lost my temper rather quickly back in those days, so I turned around, and I punched him as hard as I could right in the kidneys. And all of a sudden, Sarge, Sarge has his books, and, and he always talked kind of like this. You want something, sucker? He always called everybody a sucker. You want something, sucker? So he threw his books down on the floor, took his jacket off, and goes, Come on, sucker, I'm going to give you some lunch. And I'm going like, all right. So I took my jacket off, and I'm standing, and I go, you know what? I'm going to be all over you like white on rice. I'm going to be on you like ugly on an ape. I am just going to mop you up on the floor. And, and he's going like, and, he, and, he's, and then all of a sudden, he just kind of went like, 
I don't think you're worth the trouble. And I go, that's right, boy. Pick your stuff up and get out of here. And he picked up his jacket and his books, and he started to walk off down the hallway. And I'm going like, because I was, I was all of five foot five and weighed about 110 pounds. But I was dynamite. And I felt pretty tough because I just sent Sarge running. And then I turned around, and there's my brother Dwight and Tony and Scott standing right behind me. And they're going, what's going on? And I go, did you see that? I just scared that sucker off. And they're going, yeah, you're pretty tough. And I'm going, yep. Well, like a few days later, my best friend Scott said, yeah, when we walked up behind you and, and Sarge was getting ready to pound your head in, your brother Dwight just went like this. You see, I thought I was really tough, but the reality is that I had the big three behind me. I had the big three behind me. And I'm telling you right now, you are in Christ Jesus. You've got the big three. You've got the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And nobody messes with God's kids. Nobody messes with God's kids. Because he will put a whooping on that guy like you wouldn't believe. And so what we have is, but, the, but here, Paul says, you know, the spirit of the air, the devil, has influence on those who before Christ people. People who are not in Christ have this influence from the devil. Now, it's not that he's possessing everybody. Not everybody that's not a Christian isn't demon-possessed. We don't need to do exorcisms on everybody. We don't walk up to them and go, you a Christian? Because if you're not, I'm going to... I'm going to exercise the demon out of you, boy. That's not what we're called to do. And that's not what God says. Because what, what happens is, is that we give more credit to the devil than what he deserves. He is here to kind of mess things up. He is here to try and influence us in ways. But we give far too much credit to what he's doing than what he can do. It's crazy. You know, I mean, I don't know how many of you remember the commercial back. I can't even remember what the commercial was, but it was the punchline on it was, the devil made me do it. Do you guys remember that? Yeah, only those old people up there said yes. You young people don't know nothing. Flip Wilson. Thanks. That old guy over there knows. He used to say it all the time. The devil made me do it. I'm going to tell you right now, the devil can't make you do nothing. He can't. What his job is, here's what he does. He comes with temptation. In other words, he'll throw something in your path, and you look at it, and you go like, ooh, that looks juicy. I think I want to get involved in that. And then all of a sudden, you got somebody tapping back here, and you go, and you look around, and it's the Spirit of God going, don't get involved in that. And you go, yeah, that's not a good idea. I'm not going to get involved in that. And so we turn around, and we walk away from what the, what the devil wanted us to get involved in. We can just turn around, walk away, and not be involved in it. But he throws the temptation out there for us. Sometimes we go like, yeah, I think I want to get involved in that. And, and, and God's doing this, and we're doing this. Nope, God, not right now. I'm about ready to do something naughty, and I don't want you to watch. And that's what we do. We just get involved in naughty things, and God's going like, I told you not to do that. And we go, I know, I'm really bad, and you don't love me anymore. And God goes, no, I love you just as much as before or while you were doing your naughty thing. But the devil doesn't have that control over us. What he'll do is he will lie to you. He will try to manipulate things. He'll try to deceive you. But he can't do anything to your soul. I'm telling you, that is secure in the hands in the, uh, of our God, our Father. It is right there, locked down. Nobody can get at it. But the devil does have an influence. Not as big as we want to give it to him, but he does have one. So we do have to be aware of that because the Bible tells us that the devil goes around prowling like a lion, looking for someone to devour. Who is he going to devour? He's going to devour those people who crack the door open on sin and give the devil a foothold to come in and cause mayhem. Uh, let, me, let me explain how this works. It's the guy at work who on his computer all of a sudden sees a pretty girl on his computer and he's going like, wow, she's hot. And so then he goes, hey, I wonder what another girl would look like. And so he types stuff in. And all of a sudden, he's going from 
from viewing this to all of a sudden he's got full-blown porn on his work computer. And the next thing you know, there's someone that's contacted him and said, hey, you want to hook up tonight? And, and I was on, you know, and next thing you know, they go from being a guy who loves his wife and his children and is a member of the church to getting involved in just a little peeksee here. And then he steps in over here and all of a sudden he's into pornography and then he's into an affair, an adulterous affair. And that's what the enemy is trying to do to us. He's just opening this door back up here because he knows the human heart and how susceptible we are to the, the ugliness of sin and how much we enjoy it for a season. But at the end of it, it is destruction. So beware of the devil, but don't give him more credit than what he deserves. And that takes us onto the flesh. Because you see, in the flesh, this is our sinful behavior. We're all born dirty, rotten little sinners. Somebody wants a t-shirt. I'm a dirty, rotten sinner. Well, it's true. Without Jesus, that's all we are. It is, spiritually speaking, we are dirty, rotten little sinners. And, and we need Jesus. Because Jesus is what cleanses us and purifies us and makes us whole. We're broken. We're, we're, we're um, disheveled. We have no real course or direction, spiritually speaking. We just do whatever, willy-nilly, whatever wind's blowing our way. We'll get involved in that stuff. And we never understand why we are not satisfied. Because our flesh has this desire to do our own thing. We are born with this natural desire to do things that are evil. Matter of fact... King David, he's one of those guys that cracked the door open for the devil to come in and, and he saw Bathsheba on the rooftop taking a bath in the middle of the day when he should have been at war, the Bible tells us. And he's looking and he's going like, she's hot. And he tells his servant, have her come over for dinner because we're going to have the best wine and we're going to have roast lamb and we're going to have all kinds of great vegetables and we'll have a little um, um, chocolate truffle afterwards. It is just going to be awesome. And so he brings Bathsheba to his house. She's a married woman, married to Uriah, his, one of his greatest generals. And of course, when you drink too much wine and have too much chocolate mousse, bad things happen. And he got her pregnant. So he brings Uriah home and he says, Uriah, you've been fighting hard for me. I love you. You're a great guy. Now go over and... And spend the night with your wife. And Uriah is a man of honor and integrity. And he takes his little mat and he rolls it out at the door of David's castle or his house. And he sleeps outside on the mat on the hard ground. And, and the servants come in the morning. They say, oh, David, what, did you see Uriah? He slept outside your door. And so he brought Uriah back in. He's going like, listen, you need to understand. I want you to go home and spend time with your wife. You deserve it. It's kind of like, you know, I'm just giving you a blessing here. And Uriah looks at David and he says, how can I go home and enjoy the comfort of my wife and my home when my men are sleeping on the field of battle underneath the night stars and they're fighting for their lives? I cannot, as a man of God, justify going and being with my wife. And that angers David. And so he writes a little note and sends it off to the head guy. And he says, when Uriah comes, I want you to put him right at the front line. And when the arrows start to fly, I want everybody else to take five paces back. And Uriah was killed in battle, but it was murder because David set it up. So he committed adultery and he murdered. Did the devil make him do any of that? No. What was it? It was his flesh. It was his own sinful flesh. And after he got caught, Nathan the, the prophet came to him and, and revealed his sin. David was in such deep remorse because what God could have done is God could have killed him. That was the punishment for adultery and murder. And then God spared his life. And out of that, David wrote Psalm 51. My favorite psalm, by the way. So let me just read... David's confession in verses 3 to 5 out of Psalm 51. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. 
Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, it didn't mean that his mother had an adulterous affair and, or fornicated and had the child. What he's saying is, is that every child, every person born on this planet is born a sinner. David says, I'm one of them. I'm the worst one of them. Look what I've done. And yet, in the end of it, he says, do not hide your spirit from me. Do not turn your face away from me, but restore your spirit to me. The joy of my salvation. You see, it's the flesh that comes out, and the flesh wants what it wants. And it is contrary to what the spirit of God wants. That is the very reason why God sent Jesus was so that our sin issue would be dealt with once and for all. And here's what God wants. He wants a broken and a contrite heart. He will not despise. He wants us to come and say, God, I've blown it again. I've sinned. I've messed up my life. I've messed up everything and I'm so sorry. And I can't believe I'm so stupid. How will you ever love me again? And God says, I've never stopped loving you. I've always loved you. There's nothing you can do that can rob you of my love. You can't get any more of it. You can't get any less of it because you've got all that I have. But it is our flesh that draws us away from God. It is our flesh that keeps us from going to God. And that's what, that's what Paul's saying here in Ephesians. He's saying that the world, the devil, and the flesh are the three major influences that, are trying to, that will try to keep people away from God or drag us away from that relationship we have with God. And so I'm just telling you, like Paul is, be aware of these things. Make sure you understand it. Have a a clear understanding. Don't walk through your day with a paper bag over your head pretending you don't know what's going on because you're very aware of what's going on. You're aware when you get angry. You're aware when everybody's gossiping around the water cooler about the boss or some other coworker. You're aware when you're looking at a woman, as Jesus says in Matthew, just a look is lustful and that's adultery according to Jesus. We are aware when we, de- when we desire money more than we desire God. We're aware when, we've, when we, we take a look at something, some temptation. We know that's temptation, and we know we should flee from it. But yet we step into it. We're aware of those things. We're aware that people around us are on this path of death and destruction, spiritually speaking, because they have never stepped into a relationship with Jesus. And that's the only way to get off that path is through Christ. So let's move on. That's the bad news. Let's get some good news mixed into this, and there's plenty of it. Verses 4 through 7 of Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which he has loved, which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Here's another trifecta, another threeism, if you want to call it. This trifecta comprises of the rich mercy of God, his great love that he loved us with, and his grace. These are the things that combat those things that Paul was talking about in the first three verses. This is how you fight that. This is how you win that battle. This is how you get over the hump. This is how you become a person in Christ is by stepping into this and understanding what it is. These verses are important for us because they're making the swing. It is where those who are outside of Christ find no hope because they've not experienced the mercy and the love of God. They don't know anything about His grace. So they live in a hopeless condition, spiritually speaking. They just walk around because there's nothing else there. For us, it would be hopeless as as well, but there's this little word right at the beginning of this, and it says, but, here's all this bad news, but God is the next word. God is the one who can do whatever it takes to rescue us. God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us is where we swing off the path of death and destruction to, the, to a path of hope and life. 
mercy and love are the revelation of God's being, not a response to something that merits love in the individual. In other words, it's all by God's doing. God initiates all this mercy and all of this love and this grace. He's the one that initiates it. There's nothing that you can do to get God to love you. He already does. There's nothing that you can do to earn his mercy. He's already already holding it out for you. There's nothing that you can do to step into his grace because he's already provided it for you. They're all there ready right now and all you have to do is, is say, I want it, and God says, you've got it. There's no merit in what you can do. You can't be good enough. You can't give enough. You can't be kind enough. You can't help enough old ladies across the street enough. You can't pick up enough dog poo down at City Park to do it. There is nothing, no merit in you to be able to provide for yourself what God has already done. It's, it's, It's the craziness of God. God has done this thing for us that just blows our mind. God acts in mercy because he is that kind of God. God's mercy is what he does, not to give to us what we deserve, but rather he gives us what we don't deserve. Salvation from wrath, his wrath. Let me go back to Psalm 51, verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. You see, David understood what his sin was. He understood how vile it was to God. And so he calls out and he's asking God for two things, according to his steadfast love and his mercy. Not to annihilate him. Not to pour out his wrath upon him that he deserved. And God answered that prayer. It's... I want you to notice that our sins, our transgressions, our iniquity, our evilness of our heart can only be blotted out or, or dispensed with by God. There's nothing you can do. There's nothing I can do to remove our sin. Only God's steadfast love and his abundant mercy can deal with our sin issue and remove it. The love of God is the major theme here in Paul's writings about understanding salvation. God is not an onlooker in, salva- in the salvation process or in an angry huff waiting to be appeased. Rather, he is the one who by his love deals with our own wrath, his own wrath, and shows us mercy to those who recognize their hopeless condition. God's dealing with his own wrath here. He says, I'm going to pour this wrath out on all of mankind, all of humanity that does not step in and, and accept my grace, my mercy, and my love. Because the reason he's doing that isn't because he's an ogre or that he's going to get jollies out of this. Because the Bible tells us that God's heart is that no one perish, spiritually speaking. But there are people who are going to perish because they don't want God. They want to live in the evil world. They want their own way. They don't want to submit to anybody. And by doing that, they've submitted to the world, the flesh, and the devil. I I love what Paul says to his young apprentice, Timothy. He says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he has judged me faithfully, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. You see, we got to get this picture in our head. that The people who are not in Christ Jesus, they act ignorantly. We cannot hold them to the same standards that we hold people who are in Christ Jesus. People who are in Christ Jesus, we need to let them know that that is unacceptable behavior. But we don't condemn them. We love them. But we can't take what we've got over here with these people and say that's unacceptable behavior and apply it to someone who has no idea about God or understanding about God's, God's love for them or what God's calling them to be. We try to do that. And all we do is we irritate people when we do that because we're trying to take them and make them them. And God is the only one that can change a heart. Nobody else can do that. Now let's go back to verses 4 through 7. And I'm going to wrap this up here in a couple minutes. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We have been made alive, given spiritual life because of Christ. The next six words right there, by grace you have been saved. Those are the key words. Grace is the key, the ingredient by necessity which comes first of everything else. And every, everything else flows from His grace and is built upon God's grace. Grace means the complete, undeserved, loving commitment of God towards us. It's not us towards God. For some reason, unknown to us, but which is rooted in His nature, God gave Himself to us, attaches Himself to us, and acts to rescue us. Though the wrath we should have Coming to us, we have the saving grace coming to us instead. The action is rooted in God's very nature. The initiative always lies only and completely with Him. No human action could remove us from the plight in which we are found prior to Christ. If grace is God's giving Himself to us, then this grace in this passage connects us deeply to Christ. Romans eleven six says this, But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. So what do we do with this? Because here's what we have. We have have mercy, love, and grace that are combating the the, um, world, the flesh, and the devil. When we step into Christ, there is something magnificent that happens in our hearts. And that's what it says in Romans 6.14. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under the law but under grace. You want to get out from under the burden of sin? You don't want sin to have dominion over you? Then take the grace of God. Step into relationship with Christ and live as free people that Jesus meant for you to be. I've, I've, Romans and Ephesians are well connected together. And so one more passage from Romans, Romans 3. Paul tells us, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, and, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In case you didn't get it yet, it's all about Jesus. It's all about His grace, His mercy, His love for you. Nothing that you can earn, merit, or do. It's all about Him. God was rich in His mercy, and He did all this for us. Now, this is how I'm going to end our talk this morning. We've been reading through this passage of of Scripture, and we took a look at who we were before we stepped into faith in Christ. And now God says, this is how you came into faith in Christ, and this is how I'm making you a new person, a new creature, a new being. In the last couple of messages, we've learned about all the great attributes of God that are poured out for us, that are given to us, making us the men, women, and, and children who are walking in spiritual obedience to God, not out of, out of necessity, but out of the love in our heart for God. And so, we've moved off of this. You know, without God, humanity is in a bad place. With God, we have the greatest hope in the world. Out of the overflow of grace, there will be peace, joy, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control, which we have never been able to plumb the depths of. It's more than we could ever ask. And so here's kind of what I want you to do this next coming week. This next coming week, I want you to take time and I want you to think on two things. First of all, for those of you who have stepped into relationship with Christ, I want you to remember who you were before you came to Jesus. What was your life like? How did I behave? How did I talk to other people? What kind of words did I use? What were my thought patterns? How did, how did I live among other people? How did I treat other people? Then I want you to think about how you were, what, I want you to think about the difference Christ has made in your life, what you were like 
since you've come into faith with Christ. How Christ has changed your thought patterns. How he has changed your behavior. How he has changed the way you act. And the way you treat other people. All those things I want you to think about this week. Because next week, we're going to do something a little bit different. A little bit more unique. And so next week, you're, we're going to have a bunch of cardboards like this one right here. And it says right here, I was. In other words, what was my life like before Christ? What was I like before Christ? This is who I was. I was doomed to die because I was a coward for Jesus and I didn't trust him. Might be something like that. And then on the other side, we want you to write what God has done for you. I want you to tell us who you are. You write, I am healed. I am loved. I am accepted. I am a son of God. Whatever it is, whatever you think of through this next week, I want you to do that because we're going to have a couple of tables set up, one over here at this spot and one over at this spot, and we're going to have some cardboard just, with the, just as you see it like this, and then we want you to come down while there's a special song going on, and we want you to write your testimony in a few words on there, and then we want you to take your board, you pick up your cardboard over here, you write something on it, and then you pick it up, and you just walk across the front like this, holding it up for people to see. And then you stop here, and this is who I was, and then you flip it around, and you say, this is who I am. And then you walk off, and you can go sit down and take your cardboard with you, take it home, because that's your testimony. So we want you to think about that. I'm prepping you. I'm giving you a chance to think about what God has done for you, who you were and who you're going to be. Let me finish with this little word. The Bible tells us that greater is he, God, Jesus, who is in you than he who is in the world. And so this morning, I want you to walk out of here going like the greatest hope I have is the fact that I have experienced the mercy of God through his great love that he loved us with, and I have been saved by his grace from his wrath. It was his doing to, to protect me from his wrath. That's all God's doing. Amen? Our Father, this morning as we think about all that you've done for us, sometimes words just pale come out and express our heart. But I pray that you would just work in our hearts, God, that you would, you would speak to us and say, I've got this. You don't need to worry about any of it. You're my son. You're my daughter. You may have been that way, but that's not who you are now. You are loved. You are cared for. You are forgiven. You are redeemed. I pray that you would implant those seeds deep in our heart. So when the enemy tries to lie to us and tell us that you don't love us and that there's nothing that we could do to earn your favor, that we are doomed because we have blown it yet again, that we would remember that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Not our sin, not our thoughts, nothing. And so we ask, God, that you would in penetrate our hearts with the truth of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' great name.